I couldn't help but chuckle a little bit while Jesse was praying, and it's not that I found anything funny that he was praying, but Tim, week after week, often says that Jesse steals his sermon um, <laughs> while he's praying, and he used several lines that I have programmed into my sermon here. So if you hear it again, um, Jesse and I didn't talk about it. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, our text this morning will be verses 14 through 23. This is the word of the Lord. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning because you are worthy of all praise. As we gather around your word this morning, let us approach it with humble hearts and open ears. May we be a people that lead with the gospel and that finish with the gospel and leave all else to you. Lord, thank you for this privilege, and I ask that your spirit this morning would speak to hearts and that we would learn from your word so that we may glorify you in all that we do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Source of Defilement. As biblically literate Christians that we are sitting here this morning, I believe that most people here, if you were interrogated or questioned, would affirm the universal sinfulness of man. After all, our own church covenant or our church membership document outlines this. It says, quote, I am, along with humanity, Christ excluded, by nature and action, a sinner, end quote. But this view is always in sharp contrast with the world around us, is it not? The world teaches the common good of man, the common good of mankind, and the evil that is around us is propagated by external sources. People say things like this, the devil made me do it. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Uh, it should. It happened in Genesis 1 through 3. It was an outside source, right? The devil made me do it. It was never me. It was someone else. Our problems, according to the world, are always influenced by an outside environment. If we open up our eyes and ears, we see this around us every day. 
As a parent, it is especially easy to experience this with your children, and I can give many examples, but one good example that I can think of recently is as we are going through the Christmas holidays, many parents, you will know that if your children are off schedule, it gives them a chance to act up and to be mischievous and to cause all kinds of problems when they're not going, doing their normal school routine, when we're not doing our normal work routine, there's always a chance to get in trouble. Specifically, my four girls are going through a screaming phase where they want to scream at the top of their lungs, bloody murder, all the time. And you can imagine that myself growing up into a house of all boys and a military background, I do not do well with screaming in the house. <laughs> it doesn't work. So last week, I believe, we locked the girls out in the backyard and had them go play while I'm sitting on the couch trying to enjoy some leisurely downtime holiday activity of smoking a pipe or drinking wine or whatever you want to imagine that I'm doing on the couch. <laughs> and, and what happens? They start screaming bloody murder out in the backyard, and I am picturing the neighbors obviously looking through their blinds. You know they're doing this. I do it to other, other people, right? <laughs> They're, they're looking through their blinds, and they're wondering, what's going on? What are their parents doing? Do I need to call the cops? And I look over at Sarah. She opens up the back door, and she yells out the, in the backyard, stop yelling right now, or you're going to get in trouble. Famous last words, right? So what happens when she closes the door? Immediately, they start screaming again, right? And Sarah opens up the door and says, all right, who was it? Who did the screaming? And I know better than that. I don't even wait. I get up off the couch and storm across the living room, out the back door. There's no interrogation process. There's no who did it. Everyone gets punished. <laughs> and then we march inside, crying to the rooms and sit around. Because what would happen if I asked who did it? Well, Dad, Violet started the screaming. And she'd say, no, it wasn't me. It was Julia, or it was Rachel, or whoever it may be, but the answer is never, the problem was with me, and I know better, it was all of them together was the problem. We see this all the time in schools. I don't know if there's any teachers here this morning, but there's always that one child in your class, his name is probably going to be Billy Joe, or Bobby, or Henry, and you all know what he looks like. He's the same child in the class, and he's always getting in trouble, right? But it's never his fault. And so you call in the parent and have to have a parent-teacher meeting because Billy Joe decided to cut off his classmate's hair with his scissors from his desk. And is the normal activity of the parent or the child to be like, yes, I know he's a rotten, spoiled kid. It's his fault. Is that the normal, everyday response? No. The response is usually something along the lines of, yes, I know he did something wrong, but he's bullied at school. The kids make fun of him. He has this problem going on at home. He has this bad influence in his life, and that's why he did it. Now, friends, this morning, I believe that bad influences are bad. If you are a drug dealer and you raise your children in the house, while you're dealing drugs, they are probably not going to grow up to be the best examples, certainly. But the point that we're going to get at this morning and that Jesus is going to show us in this short parable is that the problem lies inside, at the core. The problem lies inside. 
The Bible gives us a radically different view of ourselves and the world around us. We need no bad friends influencing us to make bad decisions. We need to remember that when we need to remember this when teaching our children. My wife and I, we homeschool our kids. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with public school, but we try to keep them from the bad kids down the street, watching the bad television, whatever it may be. But ultimately, that's not going to fix the problem. It may help to a certain extent. I was reading J.C. Ryle's um, commentary this week on this passage that Tim let me borrow. And Ryle says, if parents were half as diligent in praying for their children's conversion as they are in keeping them from bad company, their children would turn out far better than they do. And that's true. Again, don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating that you let your children play with bad influences. But the problem is in the heart, ultimately. This morning we will look at one short parable of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he expounds upon the source of defilement. In this section, Jesus masterfully articulates the difference between both true and false sources of defilement. It is important that we look at it in its context. This is not just a passage for us to look at with Jesus giving us a beatdown about how bad we really are. That is true, but it is in the context of Mark's gospel, as last week we looked at Jesus' engagement with the Pharisees over external religion. Last week was focused on the tension between the traditions of man and the Word of God, but this week the Lord takes it a step further. He goes to the heart of the issue and he peels away the layers of the onion, if you will, much deeper to the spiritual condition and reveals the smokescreens that are behind all work-based religions. So let's jump into our text this morning. Verse 14, we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. I think it's important that we take a step back for a second and look at the context of the last two or three weeks. If you take your Bibles and turn one page back to chapter 6, you see that our Lord Jesus Christ is gaining a crowd. People are following him, whether it is to hear his teaching, whether it is because they have been healed, um, or whether they are getting food. They are following him around, and his fame is spreading. Chapter 6, verse 34 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I'm really looking at this as the first act of a three-act play this morning. That first, Jesus sees the crowd. He has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them. And what happens in the second act? Well, this was last week's message. The Pharisees come rolling in. They come from Jerusalem. That's not a quick trip. They would have came to Galilee specifically to confront Jesus and what he was doing. They come rolling in like wolves, wanting to drag through the dirt all those that are listening to him with false teaching. As we mentioned last week, holding to the traditions of the elders, works-based salvation. They ask this question, why do your disciples, excuse me, first, chapter 7, verse 5, here's act 2, why do your disciples not walk 
according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. Notice that comma, but eat with defiled hands. Last week, Tim expounded upon the traditions, the tradition versus scripture. This week, we're going to answer the heart of the matter in really the third act where Christ expounds upon this passage and shows us its true meaning. First, he says, hear me and understand. This should have people's ears opening. This is important, what the Lord is about to see about to say. He is a greater prophet. He is a greater prophet than Moses that we hear about in Deuteronomy. He is a greater prophet than Isaiah, and we should listen to what he has to say as he expounds upon this prophecy. He says, here's his thesis statement, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's a short, simple statement from our Lord focused on eating, a simple act of eating food. The first thing that you need to notice is the word defile is used five times in this passage. It's the Greek term koinao. koinao. It is an anonym for the word clean. It means unclean, simply. To be made unclean, to desecrate, or to pollute. The New Testament and the Old Testament speak about the word defile or being defiled all over the place. In the New Testament, it is is normally used with spiritual defilement, where the Old Testament very often is concerned with physical defilement. Here's a few places that talk about defilement in the New Testament. James 1.27 says, It speaks of a religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Paul often speaks of being spiritually undefiled before our Lord. And Revelation 14.4 says, Those who have not defiled themselves will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are blameless. Who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, as we talked about this morning in our corporate reading? Only those with a pure and undefiled heart. In the Old Testament, the term defiled is used over 200 times, as you can imagine. Many of them are in the book of Leviticus, the Levitical law code, but it's all over the Old Testament. Daniel, for instance, is concerned with not eating foods that defile him before the Lord in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. David himself cries out often in the Psalms, give me a clean heart, purify me, So, if we see in both Testaments that this term defiled is important and that we must be undefiled to enter the presence of the Lord, this morning we should open our ears and be concerned with this. How do we become undefiled? If God has gone to such great extent to tell us that we need to live an undefiled life, we should pay attention this morning on what it means to be undefiled undefiled or defiled so that we can know how to deal with it. First of all, Jesus says there's nothing outside a person that can defile him by going into him. This is language looking back to last week. Think back. Jesus's point last week is that ceremonially washing your hands before you eat is not giving you a spiritual boost. 
the Pharisees themselves are concerned with the externals. This is what they love. They are striving in a work-based, outward-based religion that leads nowhere. We looked at this last week. This is not Jesus' first engagement with the externals of the Pharisees. Turn over quickly to Luke chapter 18 with me. There are several places that we could look in the New Testament, but I think that this is helpful this morning. This is the religion of the Pharisees. We all know this parable. 18, starting in verse 10, Jesus says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Skipping ahead here, he says, I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. This is an external, outside-based religion where inside, as Jesus says, there are stinking, rotting bones. And who went up justified? It was not the Pharisee. It was the tax collector who beat on his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's nothing from the outside that you can do that defiles you. It is from the inside. Moving along, Jesus talks about that which comes out of you is what defiles. I think it's important here for us to look at the parallel passage to Mark 7, and that would be Matthew 15. So if you would, turn there quickly. Matthew chapter 15, Matthew adds in a few important details that we should take note of. This is the same account, starting in verse 10 of Matthew 15. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth, underline that word, that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It's interesting that Matthew has the word mouth here. I believe that's what Jesus actually said, the words that came out of his mouth, all puns intended. But why doesn't Mark include that? Well, we learn all throughout Scripture that the words that we say are closely associated with our being. Your speech reveals the motive behind what is going on. It shows the issues of the heart. What you say is what is inside. That's why the old schoolyard saying of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me isn't true. Because when someone slanders you, when they talk about you, when you have some type of an argument with your spouse or your friend, it hurts because we know the intent behind those words themselves. There's something very deep going on here in Scripture, and there's many places that we can look to see how the words of someone is associated with their being. But think just quickly. This is a picture of Christ, the Word of God. The Word creating the world. God spoke forth. John 1.1 says the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's so closely associated that we call, or that Jesus is God Himself, the Word, who we know from Colossians 1 created the whole world. 
There's a deep meaning going on here. Let's turn quickly to James chapter 3, the most famous passage on words and mouths. This is where every mother goes to teach their children when they're speaking profanity and they need to wash their mouth out with soap. Uh, This is where they go. James is a hard book to find. It's a little book. I always forget if it's after Hebrews or before, but it's after Hebrews. So why can Mark not include mouth in his passage? Start in verse 2, James 3, 2. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Skip down to verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. This is why Mark can exclude the word mouth, because your mouth is so closely aligned with your person and your being and what you do. There's some great application here if we look at Proverbs. You don't have to turn there. But Proverbs 6, 12 says, a worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. How do we identify a worthless man? Well, he's going to have crooked speech. Proverbs 15, 28, the heart of the righteous ponder how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours forth evil. Those with an evil mouth come forth evil things. This is why Isaiah said, My mouth is unclean. Clean and cleanse my lips, O Lord. I love the gospel of Mark because he gets right to the heart of the matter. The mouth is the man. That's why in verse 15, Mark writes, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person, and this is important to note here, this is not one person, this is not the drug dealer down the street or the homeless man or that one crackpot that you know, this is the man, mankind, mankind, womankind, childkind, anything that falls under the genus of man is what we're talking about here, and we can annotate and take out mouth, because it's so closely aligned with our person. So that is the parable. It's a simple parable about eating, taking in, and what comes out is defiled. Now let's look as Jesus expounds upon this. Verse 17, and if you want to know why 16 is not there, it is because it was not in the earliest, best manuscripts. If you want to talk about textual criticism, Tim would be happy to do that with you. (laughs) Around dinner time at his house. You don't even have to give him a call. (laughs) Verse 17, And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. First notice that he left the people. I'm not going to go too far into this because we covered this back in Mark chapter 4, 
But Jesus gave out the word as people were able to hear it. Not all were. The, the disciples themselves had the benefit of private interpretation. We see this over and over again. Matthew adds a couple of details as well back in Matthew 15 that the disciples were angry, or excuse me, that the Pharisees were angry and offended by this statement, and why wouldn't they be offended? This is what they've been striving for, these outside external works, these traditions that they're caught up in. They would be completely angry because they were so caught up in ritualistic religion. I was talking with someone last week, and I was trying to think of someone that is obsessed with the externals, and the best thing that I could think of is those that go to the gym, gym rats. They're so obsessed with the externals. If you've got, spent any time in the gym, I was talking with Omar about this the other week, there's always that group of 10 people that are in the gym all the time. They're there at 5 o'clock in the morning when you go. They're there at 5 o'clock at night. You're just like, man, do they live here? And the, the, the ladies wear the tightest clothes so you know how thin they are. They make you feel horrible. And the guys wear loose tank tops and they're showing off their muscles to let you know how big they are. There's mirrors all around and they're focused on specific muscle groups. They're there all the time. Imagine all that striving and then one day the perfect specimen walks in and everyone knows who he is. You know, this is the Arnold Schwarzenegger body from the 70s, and you've seen him, perfect, perfect specimen, Mr. Olympia, walks in, and everyone would take note and say, how did you get to look so perfect? You make, make these gym rats just look horrible. And he said, well, I eat potato chips, and I sit on the couch, and I watch a lot of TV. That's completely opposite to what they've been striving for, hours, days in, day out, and that would make them angry because this was their religion, and it throws a wrench in the whole thing. So, of course, the Pharisees would be angry, and I think at this point, probably the disciples were a little bit confused as well. They've grown up with this as well, even though Jesus is taking the time to teach them and open up their hearts, as we will see as we move along in Mark. There's a real danger in ritualistic works, whatever it is that you might be doing on the outside. We get obsessed with it, because it becomes our own way for us to save ourselves. And we just can't do that. We want to set up our own ladders to heaven that we'll never reach. Be careful about being consumed with ritualistic works. Matthew also adds in this passage that Peter was the one who raised his hand and said, hey, can you explain this? And I think that we should take a moment and say, praise the Lord for the Peters in life who when everyone else is sitting around saying, oh yeah, I got it, and I understand exactly what's going on, really you don't have it, and you need those Peters in life to raise their hand so that you don't look like an idiot later. <laughs> Verse 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? This is a chastisement here, and other translations say, are you so dull? Are you really that stupid is kind of what's going on here. Remember, they have hardened hearts. We look just back in Mark 6, they're still in a learning phase, and it says that their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand about the loaves. And there's an important point of application here, and that's that Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues on. When we don't get it, 
how patient is the Lord with us to carry us along, to hold our hands, and to show us the truth. Peter continually messed up, as we'll look at here in a minute, but the Lord is patient and kind and chastises us when we need it, but loves us enough to show us and reveal to us the truth. Here it says, do you not understand that whatever goes into a person from the outside or the mouth, as we looked at in Matthew, cannot defile him since it enters not his heart? The heart here is not being spoken of as some organ inside of you that pumps blood. This is your internal being, your internal reasoning, your spiritual life. The Lord is using a very physical example to show us the spiritual reality. This is actually consuming food. Even my six-year-old would see this. Yeah, Dad, eating that food isn't going to defile you. It's what comes out the back end that defiles you. And that's what's going on here. This is the verbiage that is being used. It comes out in the draft, in the toilet, in the crapper, whatever term that you want to use for it. This is what is being described here. That stuff stinks. That stuff smells. And that is what is coming out of you that defiles you. There's a spiritual message going on here that we are not clean on the inside unless we are cleansed. This is why David in Psalm 51, when he sins with Bathsheba, says what? Create in me, O God, a clean heart. Purge me, and I shall be made clean. Because what's inside is dirty. Notice the parenthetical note here, thus he declared all foods clean. I believe that this is more evidence that Mark was likely a witness of Peter in his teaching because we know from Acts 10 that the Lord set down a sheet in front of Peter. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but had all kinds of clean and unclean animals mixed together. And Peter said, Lord, I cannot eat that. And the Lord said, what? Do not call unclean what I have made clean. So Peter, we see through Scripture starting to put these pictures together that the Old Testament, that these cleansing laws were really pictures and photos to the people of what the Lord was to do spiritually on the inside. We cannot go before the Lord in worship in the temple without making these doing these cleansing rituals, and without doing the proper sacrifices. But with Christ, as Hebrews tells us, and I know many of us are going through Hebrew right, Hebrews right now, that Christ is the true reality. He is, he puts all that stuff away because we don't need it anymore. We can come to the Lord because we are cleansed on the inside. All those pictures and shadows are great, but we can put them to death. And with this parenthetical note, we say, praise the Lord, right, Pastor Jesse, because we can make barbecue, and we can eat that all that we want. (laughs) And this wasn't easy for Peter, certainly. Turn quickly to Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2.
we see here the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Galatians, really angry and upset and dumbfounded that the church there is adding in external works, circumcision, the party of the Judaizers. And he says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. We cannot add anything to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If we add any kind of our own external works, whether it's, you know, having to come to church every week all year long or give a certain amount of money or wear a certain type of clothes and look great on the outside, we can't do that. It's not the gospel at that point. And Peter struggles through this. If you look over in chapter 2, that even Paul had to confront him. Chapter 2, verse 11, but when Cephas, and that's Peter in Aramaic, came to Antioch, I opposed him face to face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Just as it's not easy for Peter, I also want to warn you this morning that it's not easy for us, that we will, if we're not careful, continually try to put things before the gospel, our own lives, our own workings before the gospel, and we can't do that. We have to continually pray and cry out for the Lord to cleanse us and let us rely on Him and the perfect sacrifice of Christ for salvation. Verse 20 through 23, we'll cover together as a chunk. But I want you to see quickly the contrast between verses 18 and 19 and 20. This is very helpful to see what Jesus is doing here. In verse 19, Jesus starts with what does not defile, right? He says, then are you not without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? But verse 20 is all about what does defile, and that's coming out of the heart. This is, lets you know that Jesus is a master teacher, obviously, but this is how you tr- teach someone truths, as you teach them the negative first of what it is not. This is what I would do with my child. It's something that's hard to understand, so I'll teach you what it's not first before I get to the heart of the matter. And I think of this with Violet all the time. She'll ask me questions. A six-year-old would ask me that I can't understand, something like, Dad, what is dignity? I have no idea how to answer what dignity is. But maybe we should start with what dignity is not. What is not dignified? And then we can get to a good picture of what it is that you need to know. And it's so helpful that Jesus does this here as he's teaching. He goes deeper and says, out of the heart of man, the inward parts of man, this is what defiles. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are beyond cure. You cannot cure systemic cancer by getting in the shower and lathering up with soap. It doesn't matter how much soap you use. It's impossible. 
Many of you know I have my sister-in-law who's been, had been battling cancer over the last couple of years, a long fight, and just passed away recently. And I know many of you probably have friends with cancer as well who have passed away. And there comes a point where there's nothing that you can do. It's the inside, right? It's the inside. And it doesn't matter how much you cleanse yourself. You must be cleansed to be made well. And this is what the Lord is teaching us this morning. Again, Jesus is speaking generally here. The heart of the man, Anthropos, mankind, is dirty. Isn't it interesting that he begins this sludgery list of all the things that we don't want to talk about, but isn't it interesting that he begins it with evil thoughts? This is where it starts. Evil thoughts inside of you, where all of this nastiness comes from. And this throws a whole wrench in this idea of Pharisees' religion, right? Because they think that they are good enough that all they have to do is these works. But no, it's in their thoughts. This is Sermon on the Mount stuff, Matthew 5, where Jesus says he's always concerned with the heart of the matter, that you heard it said that if you commit murder, but I say to you that if you hate a man in your heart, you've committed murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have lust in your heart over your brother's wife, you've committed adultery. It's always about the heart. So he begins with evil thoughts. I'm not going to spend any time on the 12 nasty li- the list here. But I will say this, it's interesting that they flow out of evil thoughts. The first six in the, this list are in the plural, and they're really the, the act, the action. But the last six are in the singular in the Greek, and it's really the thought and the intent behind these acts. And they all lead to the last one, which is foolishness. And this is Romans 1, that those who are unrepentant sinners, the Lord gives them up, and they are fools. They are fools that will be punished and that will never dwell with the Lord. This is a picture that is not just something that is first century stuff. This is happening around us every day. We see it all the time. It's not just the first century. This is stuff that is tolerated in our society and also celebrated. It's what's in our hearts minus Christ. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, and so on. A few items of application quickly is that there is nothing that we can do on our own to fix this problem. Again, we cannot cure cancer by jumping in the shower. If you've ever jumped in the shower after you've sinned or felt dirty, it it doesn't do anything. Ezekiel 36 says this, this is the Lord speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. 
We must be born again. We must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the only perfect sacrifice. And He will be faithful and just to cleanse us and to give us new hearts, clean hearts. And I want to be careful here because often people that are not Christians point to the church and they say, that person is a hypocrite because they still fall, they still mess up, they still sin. And that's absolutely true. We do that. But the difference is this, those things that we do external are because of the work that Christ has done in us. It has nothing to do with our salvation. There's nothing that we can do to fix the gap between us and a holy God. But when we are kind, when we are loving, when we are following the Lord, it's not a system of salvation. It's because He has done a work in us and cleansed us, and those things bubble out of our hearts and are evident to those around us. So when we do mess up, it's not, oh, that person can't be a Christian. You know, they don't have salvation. No, we're still sinners, but the acts that we do are because of the kindness and the cleansing that the Lord has done in us. A couple more quick points of application. When your external rituals are confronted, how do you act? Are you like the Pharisees who get angry and are upset because your whole world that you have set up for yourself is toppling down? Or are you like Peter who continually is learning from the Lord how to deal with their sin and how to become stronger and rely on the Lord? How thankful we should be for the gospel, the cleansing blood of the Lamb because of these verses that we can't not cleanse ourselves. Lastly, do you pray for God to give you a clean and pure heart? This is something that we should do, and that is in step with biblical repentance. This isn't something that we just do once. We all have desires that are evil and we need to pray out. If David can cry out, give me a pure heart, we can do that on a daily and weekly basis. Change my desires. Let me desire the things that you love, the things that you care for. Mold me to be like Christ. Let's go back quickly to the question of the Pharisees, which prompted this whole response from our Lord. Why don't your disciples ceremonially and ritualistically wash their hands when they eat? It's because internal cleansing cannot be obtained through external rituals. Internal cleaning can only happen when a repentant sinner puts their faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice. As the hymn writer states, nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done nothing but the blood of Jesus. O oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow, cleansed. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we know that although we are a wicked people, that you have loved us. You have cared for us. You have spoken to us. You have opened up our ears, and I am so thankful for that, and I'm so thankful for this congregation around me. But Lord, if there are those that are here this morning that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice, in his righteousness to cleanse us, 
then Lord, I pray that you, through your Spirit, would work on hearts this morning, that you would do what we cannot do. Lord, your word is truth, and it is strong. It is good, and we praise you for it because without it, we would be blind, blind beggars groping around in the dark, but you have shown us the light through Christ. Lord, and I pray that we would recognize that our desires that are not pure, that are not good, that you would change those in us, that you would reveal our sins slowly, but that you would continually, continually make us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you this morning, and we praise you, and thank you for this time together. It's in Christ's name we pray.